0: Well, this morning we return once again to the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn with me there. Uh, As always, there are Bibles on the back table for you to use. We've been studying this great book of history as this first century of the church continues to move on as this news of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and all that that meant For God's people continues to emanate out from Jerusalem. There's no doubt that things are happening in this region. It's an exciting time in the life of the church. Individual lives are being transformed by this message of hope. Whole cities, we are told. The city of Samaria, for instance, is being transformed into a community of joy and of love. And last week, for those of you who were with us, we looked at just one example of some of this transforming work of the Gospel. We looked at the story of one man, an Ethiopian eunuch, who was drawn to Jesus by Jesus Himself. And a man that represented so much more than just who He was in and of Himself. This morning, as we continue our study and just... March along through this narrative, we come to Acts chapter 9, to another case study, study of sorts. And a story that is in some ways, kind of a furthering of what we looked at last week. It could be kind of the exclamation point of Acts chapter 8. But I think Luke has an even different angle, or an even greater message, something more for us as a church to think about this morning. And so listen as I read Acts chapter 9. We're going to read the first 31 verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way being followers of Jesus, Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days his, he was without sight, and he neither ate and nor he drank. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple." But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, but they were all seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This story that we have before us is likely one of the most familiar stories to many of you in the book of Acts and frankly has got to be one of the most incredible stories in the book of Acts. In the midst of all this suffering and, and scattering that is going on in the early church, this is a fist. Raising, pumping triumph in the growth of the early church. Because what happens here is Saul meets Jesus and he will never be the same. Of course, not everyone meets Jesus in this way. I'm a covenant kid. I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. But I'm not one of those preacher's kids that you hear about. The rebel preacher kid who goes off the deep end and then comes back as the prodigal. Now my upbringing was kind of blah. If I could use that word. My coming to Jesus was kind of ordinary and normal. And I wouldn't change it for the world. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. It's called testimony envy, right? Tim Hawkins does a little bit. Tim Hawkins, this Christian comedian, where he says, Oh, man, that guy's got such a good testimony. Mine's horrible. I wish I had smoked crack. The story of Saul is not given so that we will have testimony envy. We ought not have testimony envy. But I'm incredibly thankful for stories like Saul's because they are so different than my own experience. These are stories stories where the Gospel seems to be in high definition. Saul seems to be one of those we might call him, Hopeless cases. And it's these kinds of stories of of grace that change us, that encourage us, that challenge us. And I think that is why it's here. Luke includes this conversion story of Saul not just once, not just twice, but three times in the book of Acts. It's almost as if to say, don't forget about what God did with Saul. And of course, Luke has been hinting at Saul for chapters. I mean, when we first saw him in the corner of the screen as Stephen was being violently put to death for his faith and proclamation of Jesus and Saul is in the corner of the screen holding the garments that people might really wind up with their stones. This is an important account There's a lot to think about here, but I want to focus primarily, though we will divert from these at times, I want to devote ourselves to two truths this morning that I think this passage has to remind us and teach us of. And the first one is this. God loves to redeem hopeless cases. God loves to redeem hopeless cases. Cases. My quotes are not going to show up on the recording, but I did my little quotes. Hopeless cases. Last week we were reminded... That no one is beyond God's reach, that doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what you've done, that God's grace, if God is after you, God's grace can reach you. And while the Ethiopian that we looked at last week was certainly an unlikely convert for a number of different reasons, we might say that Saul is in another league altogether. I mean, for those who followed the Lord Jesus in the first century, Saul of Tarsus was public enemy number one. He was far from the truth. I mean, everybody knew about this guy. Everybody feared this guy. He was the persecutor. Remember chapter 8, verse 3, the word it uses to describe what Saul is doing? He is ravaging the church. Gives this picture of a, of a wild animal just tearing apart his prey. Saul was motivated. Saul was zealous. And we might ask, why? Why, Saul, are you so fired up? It's not that Saul was crazy. It's not that he had some screws loose or that he was just bloodthirsty. No, Saul, Saul thought he was serving the one true God. You see, Saul was a Hebrew full on, full tilt. He was trained by the renowned scholar Gamaliel, and he was well-versed and he was passionate about the law of God and about the traditions that surrounded that law. And he is devoting himself to eradicating the followers of the way, as it was called, the followers of Jesus, because he believes that he is defending Yahweh from false worship. He talks about this later. He recounts this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. For you have heard, he says to the church, of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people so extremely Was I zealous for the traditions of my fathers? And it's that misguided zeal of Saul that puts him on opposite sides of men like Philip. And here in our story, here in this account, Saul recognizes that men like Philip, they're somehow slipping his net. He's got this kind of net set up over Jerusalem. This way that he can kind of sniff out those followers of the way and those who are proclaiming the truth. And yet he recognizes, as is evident to us here at the beginning of chapter 9, that there are those who are slipping out of the city. They're getting out of the net and they're going to other places, Damascus being one of them, Damascus this city, just northeast of Jerusalem, 130 some miles, but it took like six days to walk there in the ancient world. And so he's headed to this place. And why does Luke say he's headed to this place? He's there to kind of establish a protocol with those who lead the synagogues in these other cities. We hear about these letters. We don't know exactly what they were. But I think they probably are like a modern equivalent of of letters of extradition. Right? If If you sniff out some followers of the way, get them. I'll come get him and bring him back to Jerusalem to be dealt with, to be handled. That's what Saul is doing. That's that's where he's at. This man is seemingly far from the Gospel. He has devoted his life to its destruction Disciples of Jesus, followers of the way, not, do not dare come close to him or any of his associates, knowing that they might get nabbed by his net. And if ever there was a hopeless case, it was this man. But I think Luke reminds us that God loves to redeem the hopeless cases. And the heart of the story is how God does just that. There's no doubt that Paul's journey uh, to the Lord Jesus is an extraordinary one. A blinding light and a voice from heaven. These these things aren't normal things. We wouldn't dare say that just because Paul or just because Saul underwent them, that, that that's how we come to Christ. And yet his Damascus Road experience, you've heard that phrase before, his Damascus Road experience does have something to teach us and to remind us about how we come to Christ. About the work of salvation. About conversion. And it has to, it has to sh- remind us three things, I think. At least three things. And the first one is this. Salvation is sovereign grace. 100%. Salvation is 100% sovereign grace. If there was ever a man that was not asking for this, it was Saul. If there's ever a man not wanting this, not just running from this, but fighting this, it was Saul. And yet, what does God do? God Hunts the hunter and makes him the hunted. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Grace, where he talks about his own journey to the Lord, he speaks of God's pursuit of him and he uses some wonderful images. He talks about a pack of hounds... God being like a pack of hounds hunting him down as a fox. And he talks about God as being a divine chess player that has moved things in such a way as to be able to declare to him definitively and finally, checkmate. And Acts chapter 9 is, for Saul, Jesus' checkmate. He was done. He was cornered. And he was helpless before the power of the risen Jesus. And I say it's the checkmate, and I bring to mind that C.S. Lewis image of of the divine chess player to say that I think there's much more to the conversion to Saul than what we see here in Acts chapter 9. Surely this was kind of an out-of-the-blue moment, right? But did did Saul go from 100% zealous, motivated persecutor of the way with no doubts, no regrets, no other thoughts, to boom the road to Damascus. Well not not exactly. In Acts, in Acts 26, 14, one of the other accounts that Luke gives us of Paul's, excuse me, Saul's conversion, he adds a phrase that's not in this chapter. He adds a phrase as he's retelling the story in that context. And he says that Jesus said to him, as he's knocked off his horse by this blinding light, he says, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now what's a goad? A goad is essentially a sharp stick. It's a stick that was used to to prod and to poke and, and to guide sheep and to drive cattle to drive any kind of animal where you want it and where you need it to go. And Jesus tells him, it's, it's hard for you, isn't it, Saul, to kick against the goat? And what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus has been after this man, has been poking this man, has been prodding this man for a long time. And it's interesting to think about all the illusions that Luke has given us To the apostle, or to to Saul, who will become the apostle Paul. And and we can think, well, was that a goad? What what was it? I mean, when we're introduced to him in chapter 8, as he's holding the garments and he's watching this saint, this follower of Jesus willingly die with joy as he looks into heaven. Was it Stephen? Was that the beginning of it? Maybe it goes back further. Maybe it goes to his training in the law. Maybe as he studied intently the law of God and and his own heart, and there was always this internal wrestling about, man, it's just not enough. Was that a goad? Or was it the resurrection? We don't know. But we know that this Damascus Road experience was, was the checkmate of a long journey of Jesus working on this man, working on this hopeless case, and redeeming him. Just as last week's God is after you, here we see God's sovereign grace orchestrating things to display His glory. And The predator becomes the prey, the captor becomes the captive. It's all sovereign grace. 100%. And further underlining this point is, is verse 7. Think about verse 7. It says, the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. And again, later in this, one of the other accounts, Paul, Saul would later talk about these men in chapter 22. And he says that they heard what they heard. They didn't understand. It made no sense to them. And what is is my point there? My point is that even in this Damascus Road experience, there's no indication that the travelers of Saul, that they met Jesus, that they were chosen, that they were grabbed a hold of. No, this this is God's sovereign grace. God's mysterious sovereign grace in setting apart this man and grabbing a hold of him. Well, that's the first thing, I think, that this passage teaches us about conversion. But the second thing, and this is still under the first point, kids, is that salvation always includes a personal encounter with Jesus. Not only is salvation always 100% sovereign grace, but it always includes a personal encounter with Jesus. Granted, it's not going to be a personal encounter with Jesus like Saul had on the road to Damascus. but you must see the risen Christ face to face through His Word and by His Spirit if you are going to come to Him. Without Jesus, without the risen Christ, there is no salvation. And then thirdly, we might say that salvation always includes awareness of our sin. Salvation is always 100% grace. It's always, at the center of it is always a personal encounter with Jesus. And salvation always includes an awareness of our sin. And this awareness for Saul comes as Jesus asks him a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was a question that as one commentator I think very nicely explains. It's a question that was an overture of grace in the form of a rebuke? It's an interesting way to think of that question. An overture of grace in the form of a rebuke. Because it's, Through it and that follow-up answer that Saul came to an understanding of what he was doing. What was he doing? He was persecuting a people. He was persecuting a risen Jesus who was revealing himself at that very moment to be all that Saul feared he might be in the back of his mind as Jesus had prodded him for who knows how long one of the beautiful things to see in this passage in that question that Jesus asks Saul was how Jesus identifies with His people. This is a little side note, but it's worth noting that Jesus so identifies with us, with the body of Christ that is the church, that we can boldly say, you can't love Jesus and not love his church. Now you're not going to perfectly love either. But you can't declare, I love Jesus, but a church is just not, his church, his people, just not my thing. Jesus, by asking the question to Saul, makes the statement, no, we're one and the same. With the story story of Saul, at the center of the story, is this intensity of the experience, right? This blindness that he he experiences. This voice from heaven. And it's interesting to think about why the Lord Jesus felt like the checkmate needed to be so abrupt and so powerful. We don't know exactly why. I mean, many people... You know, the Ethiopian, for instance, he had come to an understanding of Jesus in a very undramatic way, just simply by Philip opening the scriptures to him and, and showing him where Jesus was in the Bible. And, and that is enough and that is adequate. And so why, why did you do this for Saul? Why was it necessary? Well, we're speculating, I believe, a little bit in the mind of God, but it's interesting. John Calvin makes the point that Saul at this point as he is led, is tamed, but he's not a disciple. He's tamed, but he's not a disciple. It's an interesting thing to think about because this man is coming so far that indeed God in his sovereign grace and his infinite mercy knows that this man is going to need time. He's going to need focus to digest and to get his head around what just happened to him. And the Lord does that for him. The Lord does that for him by shutting down one of his senses, by humbling him as he did not expect nor want to be humbled. Here he was supposed to go into Damascus on a steed ready to take captors. And he comes into Damascus as a blind captive of Christ. What irony, what triumph of sovereign grace. God loves to redeem hopeless cases. I think for us, before we move on, I mean, this is, for us, this ought to be so encouraging. Because I know that some of us sit here and we, we are hopeless cases. Or we have been hopeless cases. And yet we are reminded of God's sovereign grace of our encounter with Jesus. Of the scales being removed from our eyes and seeing the glory of who He is and we rejoice again saying, thank you. Thank you for setting me apart. And some of you sit in this room right now and, and, and you're not a hopeless case or you weren't even a hopeless case. But you have people in your life who you feel you've been praying for them. You've been burdened for them for years. And it feels like they're hopeless cases. And to you, God reminds you that God loves to redeem hopeless cases for His glory. That no one is out of His reach. That no one is too far gone. Let this be an encouragement to you, Church of Jesus. Let it be an encouragement for you to acknowledge and to wonder and be marveled again at the power of the gospel. See, these disciples in the early church, they were forced to acknowledge the wonder and the power of the gospel. It's interesting to think about these two men of faith who respond to the converted Saul. First, Ananias in verse 10 and following, and then Barnabas in verse 26. We we don't blame these guys for their cautiousness, for their hesitancy about what this man was all about. And yet, Ananias, receiving a direct encouragement from the Lord, immediately comes to that place where what does he call him? What does he call him? He calls him brother. This man who had persecuted maybe, maybe some, some folks that Ananias knew himself. Yet now he's able to put his hand on him and to say, Brother, you're a work of grace. This is amazing. And I'm in awe. I'm blinded as you're blinded at the fact that God would do this. And then Barnabas in verse 26 who essentially takes this risk when Saul eventually makes his way back to Jerusalem and accepts him for who he is as a trophy of God's grace, as a hopeless case that has been redeemed. You see, I think even in the men's response, the church's response to Saul as a hopeless case, to God's grace doing the unexpected, I think we can learn from that. God's purposes are greater than our reasoning. They're greater than our fears. They're greater than what we may be comfortable with. And yet we're called to obey I prayed earlier about some of the changes that are coming in our congregation in 2014. And in fact, we are constantly changing as a church as new people come and and take us in different directions and make us a different people. And I know that at times can be hard, but it's an opportunity to respond in all to God's grace. Say, yes, God, we don't want to be comfortable. We want to do your work. We want to receive those whom you've called. We want to love the hopeless cases as you have loved them. And so that's the first thing I think we can learn. And the second thing is this, and this will be much briefer. The second point is this. God redeems his people to make them instruments for his glory. God redeems his people to make them instruments for his glory. If we ask the question, why did God save Saul? Why did God save him? Certainly it was out of his love and his desire, as Peter says, that none should perish. But Acts chapter 9 and Luke's account of Saul's conversion tells us that there's much more. Was it that Saul could live a good life, a life of comfort and prosperity and peace? No. Saul was a chosen instrument, he says, for mission. It was for mission that Paul, that Saul was saved, that Saul became Paul. Verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And interestingly enough, in verse 16, uh, Luke takes it a step further and says, Saul is not only my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, but you know what? It's going to hurt. He's going to suffer. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Talk about sovereign grace. Talk about a chosen instrument being poured out for the Lord's glory. Certainly, Saul's purpose and his mission was one of joy and satisfaction for him, but it was not an easy road. It was not a call to ease. Even in this passage, as he's preaching, as he's proclaiming with the boldness That he has experienced. He's already, the tables have turned, and he is running for his life. God is in the business of choosing unusual instruments to accomplish his purposes. We can trace them throughout the scriptures. So, the final thing I want us to think about this morning is that chosen instruments, as Luke says here in Acts 9, are not just for Bible stories. They're a reality for us and for our lives. I love Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. We read some of them earlier. They were dead in their sin, God made them alive. He gave them gifts out of His kindness. Why did He give them gifts? Verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the title of this sermon is Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Because I think Saul not only reminds us of God's passion and desire and love to redeem the hopeless cases and what that conversion of all involves. But it's also a reminder that just as Saul was chosen to proclaim God's glory in a specific time and place, in a specific way, with a, pers- with a specific suffering, yes. So God has redeemed you. So God has saved you. that you as this jar of clay that holds an incredible treasure might be used for his glory maybe you're not a hopeless maybe you were a hopeless case maybe you weren't maybe your encounter with jesus was dramatic maybe it wasn't whatever your story god calls you god reminds you this morning to recognize and rejoice in his sovereign grace And recognize your chosen purpose for his glory as an instrument in his hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story of your work. Not a story of a man pulling himself up by his own strength, by his own bootstrap, so to speak, to accomplish great things in the world. This was a man who was on a trajectory of destruction and you in your kindness and sovereign grace for the fame of your name redeemed him and set him on a course of suffering and being emptied for the sake of the gospel. Father, certainly none of us in this room desire the same kind of pouring out that Saul, who became Paul, received. We know, many of us, of the beatings and the shipwrecks and the the constant thorn in the flesh that, that carried your servant throughout his life. And certainly we wouldn't pray for that. But if that's what you have for us, then that is what we want. Because we want to be poured out. We want to be your instruments for your glory. And so I pray that you would show us, show us corporately as a church what that looks like, show us individually as families what that looks like here at Ascension. Father, may your word not return to you void, But but may it, by the power of your Spirit, accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.